morning, everyone. Lovely to be here again. Thanks to Johnny and the band for leading us uh, thus far. Uh, always a joy to uh, renew fellowship with folks, so thank you for the invitation, and uh, it is lovely, lovely to be here. Um, as you can see from screen, uh, we're, we're looking at Isaiah 40 today, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, that would be great. In my own devotional time recently, I've just been delighting in the, the majesty and greatness of God, uh, and so I'd just like to share a little bit of that with you today. My voice has been threatening to, to give up this week, so hopefully it lasts through the service. But let's read God's Word, Isaiah 40, reading from verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord <clears throat> or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand, who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust and the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering." All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood the foundation from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows in them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who, who, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. 
They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is living and active, that, Lord, it's God-breathed. You are speaking to us through your word today, and that's simply what we, we want. We want to hear the voice of, of God today. Lord, reveal yourself to us. Show us your majesty, your greatness, and your glory. And may the Spirit of God apply that into our lives, that we might seek to put you first, that we might seek to live for you above everything and everyone else, that we would seek to glorify you through our lives. Speak to us, we pray. Glorify your great name, we ask. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hopefully there'll be a picture coming up on the screen here, and you'll see, you'll all know who this man is. This is uh, Bear Grylls. Um, you probably know him um, as being the, the, the guy who puts himself in difficult situations and shows you how to survive, whether that's being in the Sahara Desert or uh, stranded on a mountain in Alaska and he doesn't have any food or water and he shows you how to survive. But not many people know uh, this about Bear Grylls, that before all of these escapades, he actually served in the SAS for, for three years. However, that service was cut tragically short uh, when he was involved in, a, in an accident that actually nearly cost him his life. Basically, he was skydiving in Zimbabwe, and after free-falling down to around 3,000 feet, he pulled his ripcord to release his parachute, and everything seemed to be going as normal. But as he, he looked up, he realized something terrible had happened. His, his parachute hadn't opened up properly. He couldn't dis, uh, control his descent back down to the earth. And before he had time to, to react and, and release his, his reserve chute, tragically landed on the ground, on his back, crushing three vertebrae in his spine, coming within a whisker of death, and it was actually questionable whether he would ever be able to walk again. But in his autobiography, he talks about what it was that helped him, that motivated him during those awful months of rehabilitation. He says that it was his vision, his vision of fulfilling a childhood dream of climbing Mount Everest. In fact, he put a poster of Mount Everest on his hospital wall to keep him focused during those difficult days. And amazingly, against all the odds, two years later after this accident, he fulfilled that childhood dream by stepping foot on top of Mount Everest. Clearly having the right vision makes all the difference in our lives. For if Bear Grylls had focused on the idea that he might never be able to walk again, then he might have been tempted to give up. He might have lost heart. But because he focused on this vision of climbing Everest, he was determined, I'm going to make a recovery. Well, likewise, it's important for us as God's people to have the right vision of God. For everything else in our lives ultimately hinges on what we think about what we, how we view our God. And so if we have a, 
a high view of God, then that's going to lead to proper worship of him and holy living for him. But if we have a low view of God, that's going to lead to um, improper worship and licentious living. In fact, this is what had happened among God's people. For they had such a low view of God that they had actually started worshiping idols. Yet in spite of Isaiah warning them over and over again that if they refused to repent, judgment and exile would soon come upon them, they didn't listen. They continued to break their covenant with God. And so as we come here to Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah is looking forward to the end of this 70-year Babylonian exile in order to bring God's people hope. And he does this in the first 11 verses of the chapter by assuring them that even though they, they don't deserve it, God would deliver them. He would pardon them. But alongside this good news of deliverance and pardon, Isaiah also wanted to bring the nation a fresh vision of their God. Not only so that they could continue trusting in him while they remained in exile waiting for their deliverance, but also so that they wouldn't make the same mistake of chasing after idols once they returned to the land again. And it's this vision of God that I want to show you today. Three things. Firstly, in verses 12 to 20, I want us to see that God is supreme. I know it's hard to imagine this considering uh, the summer that we've just had, but I want you to imagine yourself for a moment on a beach on a scorching hot summer's day. In fact, it's so hot that you, you head down into the water you, you scoop up some, some of the seawater and you cool your face with it. Now let me ask you, as you went into the water and scooped, scooped it up, did you notice the sea level drop? No, of, of course not, because all you're holding in your hand was a cup of water. Yet Isaiah shows us here that God holds all the oceans in the hollow of his hand. Or think about what you can measure with a span. I can just about measure my Bible, maybe a photograph or a, a piece of paper. Isaiah shows us that God measures the entire universe. Or think about the last time you measured something on a set of scales. For me, it was... 70 grams of plain flour to make Yorkshire puddings, one of my favorite things to eat. Yet Isaiah shows us God weighs the mountains, God weighs the hills. Do you see what he's doing here? He's emphasizing the omnipotence of God. He's showing God's people how he is bigger and infinitely more powerful than everyone else. But not only is God omnipotent, he's also omniscient. He's perfect in knowledge. You see, as you and I grow up, we always need someone to teach us, don't we? As children, we need someone to teach us how to eat, how to go to the toilet, the, the difference between right and wrong, and so on. We then spend around 14 years in school being educated, 
Then we go to work and we do courses and, uh, in order to learn how to work more efficiently in our job. When we're, we're making decisions, we, we, we sit on committees, we seek the wisdom of older people, we look at statistics, and we do all of these things because our knowledge is limited. Yet Isaiah shows us in verses 13 and 14 that God doesn't need to consult anyone. He doesn't need to be taught anything. For unlike us, his knowledge is perfect. His knowledge is complete. He didn't need to sit on a planning committee or or look at statistics in order to form the universe. He just spoke, and everything came into existence. Even when it comes to administering justice, God didn't need to go to law school. He is justice. And again, Isaiah is emphasizing these things in order to paint the picture to God's people. This is your God. No one compares to him. Isaiah then moves on to draw attention to how God is supreme over the nations. I'm sure many of you remember the phenomenon that swept across social media a number of years ago called the Ice Bucket Challenge. You remember it? Anyone do it? I didn't. I refused. Um, but basically, this was, this was a, a way of raising money for charity by throwing ice-cold water over yourself. But let me, let me or, or think, think about this for a moment. If you filled up that bucket that you were about to throw over yourself with water, and you were carrying it to the place that you were going to fill them, and you dropped a little speck of water, would you turn back and go back to the, the hose or whatever and refill the bucket again? No, you wouldn't because it's just a wee drop. It doesn't amount or matter to anything. Yet this is what Isaiah is saying the nations are like compared to God. They're like a drop of water from a bucket or dust on a set of scales. Isaiah then says in verse 16, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. You see, Lebanon was a place uh, that, that was known for the best and most beautiful trees, a place that housed lots of animals. Yet Isaiah says that even if you were to cut down all of those trees, if you were to bring all of those animals and, and offer them to God as a, a burnt offering, it still wouldn't be enough to please him. For he is supreme. All the power, all the wealth of the nations are nothing compared to the riches of his majesty, as verse 17 shows us. And by presenting this this vision of the the supremacy of God, Isaiah's doing a couple of things. Predominantly, he wants to show God's people the foolishness of their idolatry. We see that in verse 18 where he says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Isaiah then goes on to to show almost sarcastically the foolishness of worshiping idols. In verses 19 to 20, he says they're man-made. They're constructed out of sustainable materials that won't rot. And they need to be constructed in such a way that that, that they don't fall over. And you can sense Isaiah's sarcasm here as he shows God's people. How ludicrous is it? 
How foolish is it to trust in things that are man-made, that rot, that fall over, that are ultimately lifeless, when the living God of this universe, the one who spoke and everything came into existence, the one who created you and sustains you, has revealed himself to you. How foolish. True joy, true security cannot be found in anything but Yahweh. But of course, let's not forget that the heart of man is sinful. And so even though God is supreme, mankind have always sought to worship created things instead of the creator of all things. I mean, this is what God's people had been doing and why they found themselves in exile. They had lost sight of how God was supreme and exchanged him for idols. We can fall into the same trap, can't we? We may not look at idols carved with wood or stone, but there are other things that we often look to for joy and security in life, isn't there? Money, possessions, family, friends, career, education. There's nothing wrong with those things. They're gifts from God to be enjoyed. But quite often what we do is we elevate them. We elevate them to a position either equal to or above God. And when we do that and make those things the ultimate things in our lives, we have slipped into idolatry. Yet Isaiah's point here is that when we actually take the time to compare these things with God, we learn how foolish we are. For God alone is supreme. Nothing compares to him. And so looking to or placing our trust in anything more than him, even those good and, uh, and gracious gifts, is the height of foolishness. In fact, it will always lead us to a place of spiritual exile, a place of spiritual coldness and distance from God. And so we need to always live in light of the supremacy of God, for this will inevitably put everything else in our lives in their proper place. But Isaiah not only sought to challenge the people through this vision of God's supremacy, he also sought to comfort them. You see, over these 70 years of exile, God's people were surrounded by the splendor and majesty of Babylon who seemed like a formidable and indestructible foe. After all, they they had destroyed Jerusalem. They had dragged God's people off into exile. And so in a lot of ways, it seemed as if Babylon had defeated God. And so this promise of deliverance, it must have seemed like an impossible task. I mean, they had been enslaved for nearly 70 years. God hadn't rescued them. What was going to be different now? How could they be sure that God could be trusted? And so Isaiah brought this vision of God's supremacy to remind them, do not allow yourself to be fooled by appearances. Babylon might look formidable. They might look indestructible, but they are nothing compared to God. They are a drop of water from a bucket. And so in the same way as God had raised up Babylon to discipline his people, God would tear them down. And all the power, all the pomp of Babylon couldn't do a thing about it. 
And so God's people had no reason to fear, no reason to doubt God's promise of deliverance. Well, again, this is a message of comfort we also need to hear today, isn't it? For quite often we can look at what's going on in the world around us and think that there are certain nations and world leaders that are formidable and indestructible. That inevitably becomes scary when we realize that those leaders are in the control of military weapons. Yet before God, they're a drop of water from a bucket, a speck of dust in the scales. And so we have no reason to be intimidated or frightened by them because God is supreme. But likewise, when we face problems in our own lives, we can often feel at times like they're insurmountable, can't we? Yet not only is God supreme over our problems, he also cares about us so much that he ministers to us in the midst of them. And he has promised us as his people that there is a future deliverance, a final deliverance to come. And nothing, no matter how bad it may be, that comes into our lives can ever thwart that deliverance from coming. And so we have nothing to fear. We can trust our supreme God no matter what we're going through. That's the first thing. Secondly then, verses 21 to 26, let's think about how God is sovereign. So far, Isaiah had given the people of Judah ample reason to trust in God. And in a lot of ways, they, they, they should have known all of those things already. For in light of their privileged history, they should have known that no one compared to God. Yet amazingly, they had turned their backs on him time and time again. And so Isaiah now sees the need to point God's people to another aspect of his greatness. He says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Again, do you see the picture? God is the only one enthroned in glory, the only one who stretches out the heavens, the only one who gives people somewhere to dwell, the only one who plants and raises up leaders, the only one who tears them down and makes them wither. Very simply, God is the only one who is sovereign over everything. And so in view of this, Isaiah challenges God's people in verse 25, to whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. See, as we've thought about already, God's people had divided loyalties. They were happy being associated with Yahweh, but they also wanted to worship idols. Yet Isaiah shows them that no one, nothing compares to God, not even the power and pomp of Babylon. And so God alone deserves their worship. You see, God's people felt as if Babylon had the upper hand. After all, they had conquered Jerusalem. Yet Isaiah was reminding God's people through this vision of his sovereignty that the Babylon, Babylonians hadn't taken God by surprise. They hadn't caught him off guard. He was sovereign over this exile. He had used the Babylonians to discipline his people. 
and so contrary to what they believed, God hadn't abandoned them. God hadn't been defeated. God was bringing his perfect plans to fruition. And so Isaiah challenges God's people, stop hedging your bets. Worship Yahweh alone. In fact, he brings further reason why they should do this by pointing to God's sovereignty over the stars. Verse 26. I don't know if there's anything more humbling than doing that. I don't, I don't know if you do that often. Just look at the stars. Because when you do that, you immediately feel so small. In our solar system, there's only one star, the sun, apparently. I'm told it's 109 times larger than the earth. If you go beyond our solar system to the Milky Way, astro astrologers estimate that there are 100,000 million stars. Then if you consider the entire universe, astrologers estimate that there are 200 billion trillion stars. How do you get your head around that? <laughs> Yet we're told, we're told God knows them all by name. He calls them out by night and not one of them is missing. What's Isaiah's point? Well, if God is sovereign over the stars and he knows them all by name so that none of them are missing, then how could he ever lose sight of you as his people? Would this God ever forget them? Would this God ever forsake his promises to them? Never. What an encouragement this must have been for God's exiled people. Their circumstances might have been painting the picture that God didn't care, that Babylon was in control. But Isaiah points them to the truth. God is sovereign over the stars. He knows and cares for them all. And God is sovereign over his people. He knows, he cares for, and he is at work in the lives of all his people. Isn't that so encouraging? Sometimes we can look at our lives or the world around us and come to the conclusion that things are out of control, especially when things go wrong. In fact, it's in these moments that we're tempted to question God, his care, his love. Yet this vision of God's sovereignty reminds us he can be trusted even when we struggle to understand the bigger picture. For in the same way as God lovingly cares for and is at work among the stars, God lovingly cares for and is at work in the lives of you and me as his people. Reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God is sovereignly at work in all things, not some things, all things, with that good purpose of conforming, shaping, molding us more and more into the image of his Son. And so no matter what we're going through in life, we can always trust in God and should worship him alone. God is supreme. God is sovereign. Then lastly, remain verses. God is sufficient. Hopefully get that up there shortly. As we come to verse 27, we see that God's people felt abandoned. It seemed like God's promises had failed. 
I mean, God had promised Abraham that he was going to be a great nation, yet this nation had no hint of greatness. They were <laughs> enslaved. God had promised to bless his people with a special land, yet their homeland was destroyed. God had promised his presence among his people, yet the temple, that symbol of God's presence among his people, was burned to the ground. Essentially, their, their, their negative circumstances were blurring their vision of God. For instead of looking at their circumstances through what they knew to be true about God, they were interpreting God through their circumstances. And this is why Isaiah now seeks to bring them this fresh vision of God's sufficiency. He says, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He can sense Isaiah's bewilderment here. You should know these things. Think of your history. God delivered you. Think of the Red Sea. Who else can do that but God? They'd witnessed his supremacy, his sovereignty, his sufficiency on countless occasions, yet they were still failing to trust him. And so Isaiah lifts their eyes back on God by reminding them that he is everlasting. Unlike you and me who are limited in space and time, God is unlimited. He's everywhere at once. He's at work in everything. There's nowhere we can go to escape his presence. There's nothing outside of his control. Isaiah also reminds them that God never faints. He never grows weary. There's never a moment when he's too busy, he's too preoccupied, or he doesn't care, or, or that he's not, or that he's too tired. Never a moment. God's understanding is also unsearchable. His plans are perfect, even when we struggle to see or understand them. One writer says that this means God is always right now, always right here, always at work, and always wise. And that's, these truths should change everything for us. For they teach us that God is sufficient for all our needs. I mean, look at verse 29. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. I often watch my children and say to Nicole, I wish I could bottle up their energy. They run here, they run there, they run everywhere. They run about like headless chickens, and I can't keep up with them. But the thing about children is they can run about like headless chickens one minute. The next, they're out for the count. And the reason for this is because we're limited. Even those in their absolute prime. And have you ever considered the fact that we spend a third of our lives sleeping? What's that tell you? We're weak not only physically and emotionally, but spiritually. And so as we face the ongoing pressures of living in a broken world, we're inevitably going to faint and grow weary. There's external pressure all around us, but only internal weakness to deal with it. Yet God has no limits. He is more than sufficient to strengthen us for everything we face. And so what should we do? Look at verse 31. 
but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Here we see that God strengthens his people as we wait on him. As we look to him in faith, as we keep trusting in him, even when our backs are against the wall, that is the only way we can soar in times of crises, run in difficult moments, and walk by faith in the everyday pressures and temptations of life. For only the God who is all-powerful is sufficient to strengthen the weak. Maybe you need to hear that today because you find yourself in a similar mindset as God's people in exile, in view of maybe a time of illness, a period of financial instability, a broken relationship, the struggle of singleness or childlessness. You've become overwhelmed with feelings that God has abandoned you or that he doesn't care about you. Essentially, your negative circumstances are blurring your vision of God. Well, if that describes you today, fix your eyes back on the sufficiency of God. Wait upon the Lord in your weakness, and he will renew your strength. But even if you're not there at the moment, you might be someday. And so it's important that we're continually reminding ourselves of this vision of God's supremacy. And how do we do that? Well, it happens as we meditate on God's word as we take the time to read and find out more about this God who is supreme, sovereign, and sufficient, and as we etch his word upon our hearts and delight ourselves in the Lord, it means that when those times come, we know where to look. After his accidents, Bear Grylls realized the importance of having the right vision. In fact, it was his vision of Everest that motivated him to make a recovery. Well, as believers today, the same applies to us. Everything else in our lives hinges on us having the right vision of God. For when we're truly living in awe of God, idols will inevitably become less attractive because they don't compare. When we're living in awe of God, sin will be less tempting. When we're living in awe of God, service and evangelism will be more instinctive. And when we're living in awe of God, we will not be paralyzed by fear of changing circumstances. Now, of course, we'll never be perfect. And there'll be plenty of moments when we fail. But isn't it encouraging to know that God will never fail us? For like he did here with his Old Testament people, God continually is patient to teach us, even lovingly disciplining us, so that we would ultimately grow in our faith and depend on him more and more. And so there'll never be a moment in your life when God will say to you, I've had enough. Even though that's exactly what we deserve, God will never abandon us because he has secured our salvation in Christ. And that should blow us away. For this God that none of us deserve to know in relationship because of our sin, sent his son into this world to pay the penalty for our sin and rebellion. The perfect, spotless lamb of God willingly died in our place so that through faith in him alone, we might receive forgiveness and be clothed in righteousness. And because of this incredible work 
of grace in our lives. We now have the privilege of calling this supreme, sovereign, and sufficient God our loving Heavenly Father. So let's keep our eyes fixed on Him. Let's ensure that we have a proper vision of Him. And yet, if you don't know Him, I lovingly urge you to look to Jesus. You see, we're all ultimately exiled from God in our sin. And in that sin, we deserve judgment. Not 70 years, but in eternity. Yet Jesus willingly bore that judgment on the cross for us, so that through faith in him alone, we might receive not only forgiveness, but reconciliation with God, eternal life in his name, that we could know this supreme, sovereign, and sufficient God forevermore. And so if you don't know him, look to Jesus in repentance and faith. May God's word be a a blessing to your hearts this morning as it has been as I've looked at it uh, this week.